Under the radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Who are you? I'm Noah. I'm Noah and you're Allie. What are you What are you doing here? Come on, baby. Don't come near me. Don't you come Allie. near me. Allie. Help! Help! Help me! Calm down, Don't Allie. Calm down. Calm down. No! In this heartbreaking scene from the 2004 movie The Notebook, Allie falls back into her dementia after experiencing a brief moment of lucidity triggered by Noah reading her their love story. This Hollywood example is what most people imagine when they think of Alzheimer's. However, that's just a small part of what the disease can look like. Nobody would expect ordinary people to know that, but everybody would expect medical professionals to recognize symptoms of dementia and know how to respond. Turns out they don't. That's why earlier this year, the Massachusetts legislature unanimously passed an innovative new bill, a big part of which requires training for health care professionals to deal with patients suffering from Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia. The first-of-its-kind law will be a multifaceted approach for the support of people suffering from Alzheimer's and their caregivers. Later in the show, Boston-born artist Lorraine O'Grady is internationally recognized for her expansive and genre-crossing body of work in photos, collages, performances, and writing. The 84-year-old is now experiencing a resurgence of critical acclaim and popular interest with a solo show at the Museum of Fine Arts. Well, <laughs> I tried to do something that I think... Um, uh, was uh, personal, was political, but was also just about women and their lives. Lorraine O'Grady reflects on art, history, and feminism. But first, joining me in the studio, Dan Zotos, the director of the Public Policy and Advocacy at the Alzheimer's Association, Massachusetts and New Hampshire chapter. Welcome, Dan. Thanks, Kelly. It's great to be here. I'm glad to have you. Judy Johansson, an advocate and board member for the Alzheimer's Association, Massachusetts, and New Hampshire chapter. She was also the primary caregiver for her husband, Steve Johansson, who passed away recently from early-onset Alzheimer's. Welcome, Judy. Hi, Callie. How you doing? And Mike Belleville, an advocate and former member of the National Board of Directors for the Alzheimer's Association. Mike is also currently living with Lewy body disease, a common form of dementia. Welcome, Mike. Hi, Callie. Thank you for having us here today. Well, this is a very personal conversation for me always because uh, my mother died from the symptoms of Alzheimer's. And so I've been through the process of trying to recognize and trying to understand, trying to deal with professionals. I didn't have some of the experiences that are so shocking to me now that I've read about. So the first thing I want to know about uh, from you, Dan, is, you know, the need for this bill clearly is something that a lot of us just assumed was already happening. We assumed our medical professionals knew how to treat this disease. Talk to me about what the bill now will help correct. Absolutely, Callie. Mm -hmm. You know, it does seem pretty common sense for some of these measures to be in place. With this new law now in place, all physicians, physician assistants, registered nurses, and licensed nurse practitioners are now mandated by Massachusetts law to have training in the treatment, diagnosis, and understanding of Alzheimer's disease and dementia. We haven't really seen that done across the board in any state across this country just yet. And when does it start? When does when does this training start? So there's a 90-day effective mm -hmm. date when the law was signed mm -hmm. by the governor, but we're looking at actually a four-year phase-in for some of this training just so we can work with the medical community to make sure we have the proper curriculum in place and give folks time to get on board with this training. And this was something, um, Judy, that uh, for folks like yourself who've been dealing with a loved one who was suffering from this, you came face-to-face -face with this. I would assume you thought, too, that medical professionals were up on this, right? We sure did. Mm -hmm. When my husband went as, was in the latest stages of Alzheimer's and we needed to go to the ER, I thought, oh, I can sigh, you know, some relief here because I'll be in the hands of medical professionals. And we were 
really met with a system that was not prepared for his disease or his stage. And this is it's not a rare disease. You said to me uh, the hospital wasn't ready for us. Do we, we explain? Sure, mm-hmm. sure. When we arrived, uh, so our reason for going was because his hallucinations were becoming so vivid and um, causing him to react in a defensive manner. And uh, we needed to take him in so he could get into a Jerry psych unit to have his meds adjusted. And you have to go through the ER to do that. And, um, you know, we just met with wonderful people who just weren't prepared for this. I mean, a triage nurse saying, Mr. Johansson, open your mouth, open your mouth so I can take your temperature, which, you know, just was not going to happen at that point. And, uh, you know, waiting for hours, later on being called out of the room to talk to a psychiatrist and thinking Steve would be attended to. He was not accustomed to being alone at all, ever, and coming back and him being all worked up to the point where um, his defensive behavior took over, and he grabbed me, and I needed to call for help, and a team of untrained in dementia security, like five or six men, came in, tackled him, yelled and screamed at him, why are Mm. you doing this? So, you know, and then when the... Being in the ER without, we were there for four days. We were without a bathroom in his room, without room to roam. I mean, these are all things that are common known things for people with Alzheimer's in the late stages. They need to have a bathroom accessible. Mm -hmm. They need places to roam. And then by the time we got to the Jerry Psych unit, they said to me, we don't think we can handle your husband here. And I thought, good Lord, where do you go from here? (laughs) If, If the most skilled nursing place can't handle my husband. So it was really, really a surprise to me because we, you know, we took seven years to educate ourselves on this Mm -hmm. and thought we were pretty much ready for this. And um, we weren't. Uh, That's my guest, Judy Johansson. Her husband, Steve, passed away uh, from early onset Alzheimer's this past spring. Dan, just a quick return to you before I go over to Mike, and that is how many people in Massachusetts right now diagnosed with Alzheimer's? So the numbers right now stand at about 130,000 families in Massachusetts dealing with Alzheimer's. And I will just add on the training piece, it's so important that across the spectrum in the medical community we have this training because one big problem we saw was the lack of diagnosis around Alzheimer's. 50% of Americans with Alzheimer's are not diagnosed, and of those diagnosed, less than half are even aware of their diagnosis in the first place. So that's really a hallmark aspect of this alarmingly low rate of diagnosis we're trying to get at here with the medical community being appropriately trained to obviously improve the quality of care but help diagnose more folks who are going through this process. Some things need to be repeated. 50% of the people are not diagnosed because they're, the symptoms are not recognized That's the bottom line, right? Sure, absolutely. And this is something our friend Mike um, is very familiar with and has advocated for going through the process and folks not actually understanding what is happening. So over to you, Mike, um, Mike Belleville. Now, you suffer from Lewy body disease, which is a common form of dementia, but it doesn't look like what some people think you know, Alzheimer's patients would look like. It doesn't doesn't manifest itself in that way. So it was a double whammy for you, I guess, just to be recognized, uh, to have your disease recognized. Yes, it was actually. Um, I was initially diagnosed with younger onset Alzheimer's, uh, but that diagnosis changed two years later to Lewy body dementia uh, because of the And what's the difference symptoms. for people who don't know? With Lewy body dementia, you have there's a subset of other things that go on. Um, hallucinations, although hallucinations do occur with people in Alzheimer's, it's usually in the later uh, portions of the disease, where I have them frequently right now. Um, there's also uh, something called REM uh, behavior sleep disorder, where uh, I don't really get the right type of sleep. Um, my brain is not getting the signal to tell me to. To rest. You know, to, to rest mm-hmm. and to basically paralyze you when you're sleeping and dreaming. Uh, so I act out a lot of my dreams. Unfortunately, they're mostly confrontational, so I'm punching, kicking, or screaming, or things like that. Um, I also have uh, Parkinsonian-type symptoms to go along with it. Um, I don't have the same type of short-term memory loss that somebody with Alzheimer's may have. I do have it, but not as severe at this stage. So there are a lot of misconceptions about dementia as a whole, Alzheimer's as well as Lewy body. So in navigating the medical systems as they were, 
Did you say to yourself, something is wrong? What was happening when there was a misdiagnosis or they weren't getting to what was really happening with you? Yeah, we had been seeing a, a neurologist for about a year and a half uh, because we knew something was going on. It wasn't until um, my wife and I had been married 37 years, we had a disagreement one evening, as most married couples do. Mm -hmm. I woke up the next morning getting a cold shoulder, didn't understand why. And uh, she told me some of the things that I had said to her, things I would have never said to her, um, as well as I had no recollection of the conversation. We knew right there and then that that was our aha moment. Um, most people that have this disease have a moment like that. So we went back to the neurologist and said, this is not, because at the time they were telling me it's stress, it's depression. You know, I went to see a psychologist, a psychiatrist, went to the, you know, medications for that. And then it well, it's Lyme disease. So it's, I mean, they're basically shooting at straws to try to figure out what's going on. Once we told him that story, he started to look at things a little more deeply and the tests that they were running were now starting to come back with, you know, probable Alzheimer's, probable Alzheimer's. So it did still take a while afterwards, but we finally did get that particular diagnosis. So what I want to stress is the importance of not only you, Mike Belleville, who is someone who is suffering from a common form of dementia, Judy as a caregiver, and Dan, what you know in general about how many thousands of families in Massachusetts are suffering from this, the importance of the diagnosis. Because you really can't move forward with anybody understanding how to treat it or how to respond. And I can just say from a personal standpoint, what we went through with my mother, and then one of the cr critical things that the Alzheimer's Association here in Massachusetts told me, we're not from here, so my parents were elsewhere. And so I went through the process because nobody in my family would believe me. So I went and said, something's wrong I, with my mother. I need to figure it out. And I was told very wisely, you need to tell the person out loud. And I said, what? What do you mean I need to tell my mother? Yes, you need to tell her. So nobody has really acknowledged that. And then you all can begin. What a huge difference it made. She said immediately, I knew something was wrong. And I didn't know what was happening. And then we could sort of all put the pieces together. But that was a process, Judy. And that leaves you as a caregiver, caring for someone um, like Mike and his wife in the same situation. And it just, it's a horrific kind of stalemate. It if is. you don't know what's happening and nobody's supporting you and nobody's telling you what's happening. Yeah. I hmm. mean, we uh, Steve's worst fear in life was to get Alzheimer's. Steve's mother has Alzheimer's and ironically has outlived Steve. And uh, there were years that we'd joke, my kids and I would tease him like, oh, yeah, dad lost his keys again. Or oh, where's the bank pass card? But when, when work, he was a construction project manager for Northeastern University when they noticed he was not performing in the way that he had in the past. We went right to his PCP, and he pursued uh, testing with him. And the first neurologist we went to out and out called me and said, yeah, your PCP thinks Steve has Alzheimer's. I think he's crazy. Mm. But the PCP persisted, and that was a real gift to us because at that point I could have thought Steve was losing interest in work, losing interest in me, uh, mishandling things. So having that knowledge, you know, his PCP did not let up. So we went to a different mm -hmm. neurologist and got the d diagnosis and were able to take a deep breath and plan properly together and know exactly what Steve would want and also to embrace what we knew was short time. Uh, if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Judy Johansson, you just heard her, Dan Zotos, and Mike Belleville, and we're discussing Massachusetts' first-in-the-nation Alzheimer's bill that was passed in July of this year. So, Dan, nobody is saying that medical professionals, because they don't know, are somehow, you know, being obstinate. They were not trained. I just want to make that clear, that they, this was not a part of their training. There's a lot of stuff like this that we assume that they come away with in medical school or wherever, and it just doesn't get handled. So talk about that gap. And is Alzheimer's disease the only one of its kind, to your knowledge, that's sort of in the training gap for, for healthcare professionals? So, yes, we often see issues will reach a critical mass before we'll mandate a training like this. We saw this right here in Massachusetts with the opioid epidemic as well as end-of-life care. We don't view it as specifically a carve-out for Alzheimer's and dementia 
as more important than other diseases or anything like that, but Alzheimer's is so unique in how it shows up and really where we're heading in this country in terms of the expense of this disease and where the numbers are going as the baby boomer generation continues to age. So working with our elected officials, when they spoke to folks like Mike and Judy, when they saw the family impact, but also saw the financial impact of this disease, they saw it really made sense to get ahead of this, or at least try to. Mike, you put yourself out there, Mike Belleville, now suffering uh, from Lewy body disease, and told your, you've told your story many times and been before the legislature to make this point and to get this bill passed. What does it feel like to you that now something is moving in that direction? It, it obviously it gives me a great sense of accomplishment, a great sense of pride. Um, I really feel like we're speaking on behalf of a lot of voices that for folks who can't speak for themselves. Um, the other thing I just wanted to mention real quick, why the diagnosis is so important. I was 52 years old when I was diagnosed. And I've met, of course, a lot of people across the country who have been diagnosed as well. And unfortunately, the ones who aren't getting diagnosed... Um, because of their symptoms, their job performances are going, you know, down and down and down to the point where they're losing their jobs. So they're losing potential benefits that they would have been entitled to had they got the diagnosis. That's why this is so critical, one of the reasons why. But it it really does give me a sense of, of pride to be able to be a voice and, and hopefully speak for vote for people who can't speak for themselves because this, this was desperately needed. You know, Judy, you said something uh, earlier that, you know, millions of people around, well, the world, but the, the nation certainly are suffering from this. So it seems so odd that somehow it's falling into this gap of lack of knowledge on many fronts, not just for the medical professionals. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, the way what comes to mind when you say that and what I thought when we were at that horrific stage of me needing to turn over my care to trained professionals. It's like there's people around, you know, that understand different parts of this and what needs to be done. It's not until this bill coming together and pulling all those pieces together that hopefully that knowledge will all be in one place and it will make sense to go there to get that training and to understand how to deal with people from early diagnosis to end stage and all the stages in between. Because people with Alzheimer's tend to fall and have a broken arm. And how does a, an ED department deal with someone with uh, dementia, with things like that? I just, um, I'm so grateful for our governor, too, for taking this on as a cause that really was personal to him and, um, and knowing, having common sense to know that this is something that needed to happen in this state. And I feel really proud to be from this state um, because this is a flagship piece of um, policy. Bit, well, po no, policy. And advocacy, I would have to echo exactly. that. Yeah. I mean, we're it, being in Massachusetts, you know, we're really actually quite lucky right. uh, because of the work of the Alzheimer's Association. And this is it's be head and shoulders above many, many places. I can assure you having gone through this and, and worked across states with right. my relatives um, in other places. And plus, we also have the researchers who are, you know, working hard to try to figure out and untangle, you know, various parts of this. And Callie, uh, excuse mm. me for a second, but mm -hmm. like your mother, for Steve, when his diagnosis was clear, he could say to people, I have Alzheimer's, bear with me. So it made our social world so much more endurable than trying to hide this terminal illness and all the deficiencies that come with it. Well, I can tell you, Judy, my mother was uh, very brave in that she sat down and wrote letters mm. to all of her friends and said, there will come a time where you will not, I will not recognize you and you will not recognize my behavior. I just want to have time to tell you now. And um, I, I'm not sure I would have been able to do that, but I recognize that as a huge gift to have for her to have the time to do that because it meant a great deal to her and to my father as, you know, he's navigating with her in various spaces and, you know, something would happen and people could give you the support. You know, actually, Dan, that's one of the things that the people, uh, the caregivers for opioid sufferers say, they don't have that because it has the stigma. So Alzheimer's doesn't have, a, or dementia doesn't have that kind of stigma, at least like, ooh, I don't want to know about it and it could never ha happen to me. Um, but, you know, there's, if you don't know, you don't know. So you don't know how to respond. Is there another piece of this bill, by the way, that I just, because it's, we've said it's multifaceted, that it's really important to highlight um, while we're having this conversation? 
Absolutely. Mm. So we, we covered a lot of big topics here. Obviously, the training piece, you heard Judy's experience in the hospital setting. That's been a very innovative approach. We have not seen that done anywhere else in the country. There's been really good initiatives in hospital settings, but oftentimes they're piecemeal. You don't see the proper coordination. So we've been thrilled about that effort. I have to say the our partner organizations, actually the Massachusetts Health and Hospital Association, has been a great partner on this issue from the beginning before this was even a law now. Another big part of the bill is, seems more general here, but it's a state Alzheimer's disease plan. We have a state Alzheimer's plan here in Massachusetts. This was created through executive order under the Patrick administration. But what this essentially does is brings all the experts to the table to say, here's what we as a state should do to continue to face this public health crisis. So where we've had this state Alzheimer's disease plan, this bill now takes that plan reorganizes it and actually creates a permanent advisory council through the Executive Office of Health and Human Services. This really mirrors what was done on the federal level with a bill in 2010 called the National Alzheimer's Project Act that brings that same approach to the state level. So that's going to be exciting because we have that sustainability now. We know this is only going to get worse as a public health crisis. We're going to continue to see costs go up. We're going to continue to see people get diagnosed. So to have these experts at the table, cabinet members, elected officials, Alzheimer's experts, researchers, clinicians, talking about this issue ongoing is so important. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with Dan Zotos. You just heard him, Judy Johansson, and Mike Belleville. We're talking about Massachusetts' new legislation aimed at improving treatment for Alzheimer's and dementia. So now that it's in place, now that it's going to be phased in, I want to hear from both Judy and Mike. What would you tell somebody at this point? Because you're, it's going to be in a kind of a little bit of a twilight as we're switching over to places that'll be a little bit more informed about how to approach the system. I would say, honestly, mm. openly, ask as many questions that you can think of, you and your loved ones. Um, reach out to the Alzheimer's Association because they have been our lifeline. And then uh, from the heart, I would say when you're given this diagnosis that there's no hope, this legislation offers hope in many different disguises for your journey, that it doesn't have to be as destitute as it once may could have been. And when you say that, what do you mean specifically? Is there something specific in the bill that you're referring to now? Well, you know, for me, like I say, the, mm -hmm. the emergency um, mm -hmm. rooms scene was really, really horrific. Yeah. And, you know, I stopped working four and a half years mm -hmm. ago because Steve was my life. He was what I wanted to do. We, we did it together. It was very important work, and, um, and I felt blessed to be the steward of his care. So in his worst stage, to bring him in and turn him over to people who were not prepared for him was really heartbreaking, and um, I think that this bill is really going to help change that, that there'll be more education and information, compassion, and empathy for people who arrive in the emergency room given the outcome of this bill. So that, to me, is the most exciting part that stands out because that is the piece that's mm -hmm. the most raw in my memory right now. So, Mike, for you, um, now that we're in this phasing-in period, not every place that you go, they'll be ready for you um, or someone like you. But what would you say to somebody as they're preparing to, to face with this? If, if anybody and people have come up to me and told me that, you know, I, I think I have this symptom or that symptom, and, of course, my first recommendation is to see their primary care or see a neurologist. But the one thing I, I emphasize really strongly is that if you don't feel like you're getting the right answers, find another doctor. Mm -hmm. I mean, you trust your own body. You have to trust what your body's telling you. And if the doctor is just, no offense, but blowing you off, then it's, it, it's in your best interest to go find somebody else. Don't take no for an answer unless they can prove to you that that's not the case. The second thing I tell them is that you're not alone. Mm. You, there's a big support network out there for anybody who has been recently diagnosed. Um, and that's actually one of the things I'm excited about with this training bill. Um, what I hope it's going to include is because when I got diagnosed, my doctor was great. And you, you said something really great earlier about how doctors are not trained. Mm -hmm. They're not trained for this. right? They're trained to fix you. And they can't fix this. 
So they don't necessarily know how to talk to you or even how to react to you about it. When the doctor came in, he gave us the test results, said, I'm going to stop you on this medication, see you in six months, and he walked out the door. Wow. And that was it. No referrals to any kind of support services, zero, nothing. For the first five or six months, it wasn't very pretty. I was in a deep, deep depression. If it hadn't been for my wife, getting on a computer, getting on Google, finding our local Alzheimer's Association, um, and getting us involved with them. And I tell people they saved my life, not obviously physically, but they brought me back to, you know, to where I'm sitting here with you today being able to talk about this. So it, it's incredibly important for people to know that they're not alone and that there's somebody out there that they can talk to. Well, I certainly can say personally, just on the Alzheimer's, they saved my life too as a caregiver and as a long-distance caregiver. I mean, there's so many levels to this disease and how it impacts you know, immediate family, um, wider circles of family, you know, uh, information you need to have. It's a gift to be in a room with people who are experiencing the same thing and can tell you, don't do that, go over here, here, or go find this person, or let me hold your hand, or, as happened to me several times, uh, sitting in a room where you just come in the room and everybody would just start crying and nobody said anything about it. It's just, we just, that's all what we could do then. We all just cried together. And then, at you know, the leader of the group, who also had experienced this, um, would, you know, guide us through some way so that we could, you know, properly leave and, and go back to our worlds. But uh, that's that's invaluable. Yeah, I mean, it really is, that kind of support. It truly is. Mm -hmm. You know, people that we've gone through support groups uh, through the years with, and Mike and Steve became very dear friends through our journey. But um, we always say that, you know, given this diagnosis, when you meet other people who are on the same journey, you invest quicker and deeper mm -hmm. with your heart. And um, if we hadn't had those kinds of supports and those avenues, it would have been a more empty journey for us. We feel, uh, you know, in a way that Alzheimer's has afforded us some of our greatest gifts in lives, mm -hmm. in our lives. And um, we were going to get something that was going to separate us. Uh, we feel a little bit blessed that this was the diagnosis and given the support we received through the Alzheimer's Association that... Um, we have a, a brighter sun in our sky mm -hmm. than we would have had we not. So, Dan, are other states reaching out to Massachusetts saying, wow, let, let's see what we can do with this? And I'll ask you all later, are they reaching out to you to come talk? But they for, are, for now, actually, but, yeah, yeah I've, had, yes. I've had a few calls already, one from California, another one from Florida. So as mm. you can see, you know, I think a good point was made earlier, too. Massachusetts has been a leader in healthcare. Mm. And that's why a lot of these provisions do seem common sense. But, you know, we'll often see things like this. You know, one state does it, another state will follow suit. So I'm excited for what this does mean for the rest of the country. And, you know, I will just add as well, just the power of advocacy here. Mm. You know, I started this job about two and a half years ago. I remember sitting in Judy's living room with her and Steve at the time talking about some of these issues then meeting Mike and talking more about these issues. And we really reach this groundswell moment here in Massachusetts where we had a lot of constituents and families talking about these issues to the point where the legislature said, hey, we want to hear from you folks. And they convened a oversight hearing on Alzheimer's disease as a public health crisis. And that was really exciting to see, to see, hey, we're, we're really being thought of here and they want to do something about it. So I think there's a lot of good work to continue to work on here in Massachusetts. I'm excited for what this means and obviously following up with this law and all the provisions of it as well. Is there anything on the national front that's, you know, stuck in Congress or is being discussed that might build on what's here or at least start something here that you could sort of connect to and make it Absolutely. even stronger? So at the same time, and it was, it was actually ironic when we were fighting so hard for the Mass Alzheimer's and Dementia Act, there's a federal piece of legislation in Congress right now called the Bold Infrastructure for Alzheimer's Act, Building Our Largest Dementia Infrastructure is the acronym. This is actually a game changer, in my opinion, with what BOLD will do. It, it's really a federal approach to allocate resources on the state level because mm. we know this is really a disease of community. You need those resources on the local level. So this has only been in one session of Congress so far, has over 50 sponsors in the Senate, over 200 in the House, Mike and Judy have been in Washington, D.C., and in local congressional offices advocating for this bill. So 
while the clock's kind of running out now before the election, I'm pretty optimistic about the future of this bill moving forward. I also will note... Is that bipartisan support? Very, very much so. And you'll see at a lot of issues coming out of Washington, D.C. right now, this is one issue where we do see folks come across the aisle to work on this. And, you know, I will also add where we're at with Alzheimer's disease research funding. Mm. Just a few weeks ago, Mm. signed into law was an additional $425 million to NIH, um, which is our largest funding increase ever. And that really is because of voices like Mike, like Judy, meeting with our members of Congress, sharing these personal stories. We've seen it firsthand, the impact it can have. So to wrap up, Judy, what last words would you say to folks listening, trying to, you know, figure out or or just really handle your stories? Because we all take away everybody else's stories and try to apply it to our lives, particularly if we have a hint that something similar might be happening to us. Well, I would say just keep talking about this. The more we talk about it, um, the more educated everybody becomes. Don't hide in the darkness of Alzheimer's. Mm. Come out. There's a lot of us here to support each other and to keep moving this uh, forward. And um, I like to say that I won't rest until Alzheimer's is nothing but a memory. That's really powerful. Mike? Um, I just wanted to start off first by thanking all the other people who were involved in in getting this passed. This has been going on for a number of years, people who laid the groundwork for us before I even got into the picture and other people who testified. Uh, Without everybody's collective help, I don't see that this would have happened. Um, You're right. You know, we forget that. It's a long path. It it doesn't happen overnight. Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And the other thing is, um, I'm I'm sorry, I just lost my train of thought. Oh, just take your time. You said something that sounded, I wanted to talk about, expound upon, but... um, what I would love people to know about this disease, Alzheimer's or any other related dementia, is, is kind of like what Judy said, is don't be afraid to talk about it. Um, and I think that's changing. I think you're, you're starting to see a shift. Um, I like to tell people, this is not your grandfather's Alzheimer's. Mm. And what do you mean by that, Mike? By, by that, I mean um, previous generations really kept a lot of this to themselves. There were families that would just hide this and only talk about it within the family. This needs to be spoken about in the general public and in front of everybody. People need to hear about this. They need to know about it. And and hopefully when that happens, the conversation gets bigger, more people will be aware of it and support it. But most importantly for people like me and families that go through this is that the stereotypes and the stigmas start to disappear. And... You know, I, I love the saying, it takes a village to raise a child. I totally believe it takes a community to help a family go through this process. Well, you're absolutely right, and I thank all of you for joining me for this conversation because it's always tough. I mean, it's tough for me. I'm trying to lead this conversation, but just, you know, I'm flooded with all the memories of my mother and the experience that we had and just working through a lot of these issues that hopefully some people now, because of you, all of you really in your work, um, will not have to experience or certainly will experience at a much lower level than, I, than, than we had to because it's really confusing and which adds to the heartbreak in so many levels. And if we can at least get do away with that, that would be, I think, a good half of the battle. So thank you all for joining me today. Thank you, Kelly. Thank, thank you, Kelly, for having us. Dan Sotos is the Director of Public Policy and Advocacy at the Alzheimer's Association, Massachusetts, and New Hampshire Chapter. Judy Johansson is an advocate and board member for the Alzheimer's Association, Massachusetts, and New Hampshire Chapter. She was also a caregiver for her late husband, Steve, who passed away earlier this year from early-onset Alzheimer's disease. And Mike Belleville is an advocate and former member of the National Association Board of Directors for the Alzheimer's Association. He is also currently living with Lewy body disease. Coming up, Lorraine O'Grady's seminal work in 1980 brought her to the attention of the art world. Since then, her work has been celebrated in galleries around the world, including major exhibits in New York, Boston, and Europe. And her writings are considered foundational to feminist art history. Currently, O'Grady is featured in a solo show at the Museum of Fine Arts. We're at the MFA with Lorraine O'Grady next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. (laughs) 
Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. It makes sense that one of Lorraine O'Grady's recent exhibitions was entitled Speaking Out of Turn, for it was O'Grady who staged a series of performance intrusions in New York galleries in 1980 with her seminal work, Mademoiselle Bourgeoisie Noir's Invasion. O'Grady wore a debutante-style gown made of 180 pairs of white gloves as she promenaded through the galleries, whipping herself with long cat-o'-nine-tail reeds decorated with white chrysanthemums. She walked, shouting, That's enough! Black art must take more risks. From that moment on, Lorraine O'Grady forged her risk-taking career, which includes her writings, performances, collages, and photos. Here at Boston's Museum of Fine Arts, her solo show is entitled Family Gained, and we're joined by Lorraine O'Grady. Welcome to the Under the Radar Show. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you I'm, so much. I'm so delighted to talk to you. Well, one thing you didn't mention was that I was born and raised in Boston. I was about to get to that. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you jumped ahead, so uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> you're born and raised in Boston, yeah. and, and uh, your family, I learned. Well, uh, basically, I'm the last of my family, okay. my immediate family, okay. uh, but my own um, son and grandchildren live in Brockton. Oh, very good. Yeah. But your family uh, worked to build the first West Indian church, St. Yes, Cyprian's. Yes, they certainly yeah. helped uh, build St. Cyprian's, and... Um, uh, we lived, um, I, I just took friends around to, uh, see where I grew up on, uh, I grew up in 15, 15 Albemarle Street. Wow. <laughs> right. And, um, they went to, we saw my old, uh, elementary school, the C.C. Perkins, which was on St. Patolf, and it now, uh, looks to me like very elegant. Yeah, it's uh, very elegant. Uh, very <laughs> elegant <laughs> apartments, uh, uh, condominiums <laughs> or something like that, and uh, the old uh, uh, school play yard is a parking lot, you know, so everything does change a little bit, but it's amazing to me how much... Uh, that area has stayed the same, you know, St. Patal Street, and and we walked all the way up to the Boston Public Library, and um, that was where my mother was a big believer in letting the library babysit, mm. so she would Mine drop too. me off at children's <laughs> hour. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> well, because uh, Boston is your hometown and yeah. family is so much a part of your experience here, um, your exhibit here at the Museum of Fine Arts is called Family Gained. It's about family. Yeah. I wonder before we talk about that exhibit specifically, if there has been influences from your time living in Boston that you applied to your artwork throughout your career. All the time. I mean, I feel that even though I left Boston when I was uh, 21, I, right after I graduated from college, I feel that everything that I am and everything I do is based in what I became here. Um, I, I went to I, I was very classically uh, educated, and I went to the girls' Latin school in the old days. You know, it was still, uh, you know, one gender and uh, six years of Latin and all of that. Uh, and um, and before I even got to girls' Latin school, the uh, the Pouvi de Chavin murals at uh, the Boston Public Library uh, kind of introduced me to the world of mythology, which I constantly used in my work. And um, I, I would say that the uh, that my mother was uh, we're from the West Indies, and my mother was very proud of having grown roses in Jamaica, which is it's very hard to grow roses in Jamaica. So she was always taking us to the Fenway to see the rose gardens and so forth. And then on the way home to because it was so close to Albemarle Street, we would come around the Fenway the, out of the rose gardens and come into the uh, museum. And uh, this is where I first saw my first Egyptian art, you know, when I was, I don't remember how old I was, four or five or something, and I do remember that I, when I was about six years old, I definitely have a memory of seeing the Gauguin painting, mm. uh, and uh, because I, I knew that it was writing, and I knew, and I could, I could, I didn't know what kind of writing it was, because I didn't know French at that point, but I, I thought that, you know, so my, 
earliest memories, aesthetically and personally, are all associated with this city. And the aesthetics of uh, mythology and of writing on canvases, it's all part of what I do now. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so when you moved to New York and in those early days when you were, as some people say, literally crashing yeah. into the art scene, making yeah, yourself yeah, yeah. known and, and visible, um, uh, you were a part of uh, a genre that some people refer to as avant-garde. Yeah. Do you describe yourself the same way? Well, mm -hmm. yes, I I did think of myself as avant-garde because um, in those days, uh, the the genre that I was uh, using for my work, uh, performance art, uh, was it wasn't new historically, but it, I think it was. Uh, it was starting to be used again in a new way, and um, it was a very uh, experimental kind of art, uh, and very few people did it. Well, a lot of black people didn't do it, or people said black people didn't no, do it. No, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, there were many people, though, who would do a performance but as part of a painting career or a sculpture career or something like that, you know, I was the first black artist to identify themselves primarily as a performance artist. And so that way, I guess I thought I was very avant-garde. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think yeah. other people will yeah. agree with you. Because it was, it was unusual to do that. So it dawns on me that I did not describe the exhibit, which would be helpful to people to understand and put in context what yes. you're saying. Um, and so there's a, six, a series of 16 triptychs, yeah. and you have side by side. And it's startling, I have to say. Is it really? Yes. Oh, my goodness. My goodness, it's so startling to see your sister and then compared with uh, various stages of Nefertiti uh, in, at different ages. Yeah. At the same age as your sister, they look exactly the same. I know people are listening to this saying, you sound nutty, but they look exactly the same. Aren't they? It, it's, <laughs> you know, I always knew that my sister looked like Nefertiti, you know. It may have taken me over oh 40 gosh. years to make an artwork <laughs> out of that idea, but, you know, yeah, I thought so. Uh, it's I'm working. Glad to hear that oh you my think so. <laughs> yeah, I'm so happy to hear that you think so. I, we, I, I was just standing there with my producer Franny, and we're like, "Wow!" So the the impact is is definitely uh, felt immediately. You can get it whether you know um, all of the background yeah. and why you came to it and all of that. But it's interesting to see how you pulled all those themes together with these pictures, these sixteen pictures, just that show so much. Well, I tried to do something that I think um, uh, was uh, personal, was political, but was also just about women and their lives. Women as mothers, women as sisters, with women as daughters, women as friends. And uh, one of the things that's been the most gratifying for me about this body of work is that the largest the strongest, the most intense response that I get to it all over the world is from women who have sisters. Mm. I have a sister. Maybe that's... Exactly. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, wherever this work is shown, and it's been shown around the world now, it, it, it doesn't matter uh, oh, what people's individual cultures are, but the fact of having lived in a family as, as a female with, a, with another female gives you a real insight into what I was trying to do, and that's really been the most uh, wonderful part of showing the work, I think. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guest is Lorraine O'Grady, Boston-born artist who now lives in New York. We're talking about her career and her solo show, Family Gained, on exhibit here at Boston's Museum of Fine Arts. So the themes in your work, whether they be uh, performance and avant-garde, or your writings, or your collages, or now back here at the Museum of Fine Art for this exhibit, mm -hmm. Family Gain, all seem to run along the same the, the same themes, I'm guessing, you know, family. There's always a little political overlay to your work. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could tie that all together and bring us to Family Gained and how you came to put that exhibit together. And we should mention it's the first work to be acquired by the Museum of Fine Arts. The first of mine. Uh, the first yes, of yours, yes. yes, yeah. yes. Uh, mm -hmm. I would say that... Um, 
I, uh, when I started uh, making art uh, before I actually entered the art world, I was uh, more, uh, I would say, personal, a personal artist. Um, and when I, but when I entered the art world in 1980, um, I found a world that I was rather shocked by. It was rather more segregated than I had imagined. It was almost as if uh, the 19, the, the civil rights struggles of the 60s had not occurred. It was more like going back to the 1940s in some ways. And I, f I decided then that I needed to take a stand, you know? And so basically, everything that I did in art, I would say, from that moment until recently, has had a, uh, a dual emphasis. It's personal work because I care about my thoughts and my feelings and my own life experience, but it's also uh, uh, to try to make larger political points. And so uh, I thought that um, when I was doing family, a fam miscegenated family album, that I was both resolving uh, a very difficult relationship that I'd had with my own sister by using uh, a comparison with Nefertiti and her younger sister. Um, but it was also, so I was solving a personal problem. My sister had died unexpectedly, and I was still trying to resolve the relationship with her. Uh, but. I also saw this as an opportunity to make other kinds of points, like the fact that um, that I thought Egypt, Egyptian culture was rooted in African culture uh, and not really very explicable without reference to Africa because the southern part of Egypt was so predominant in Egyptian culture. And, um, and also that... Uh, that thinking of ourselves in terms of larger historical uh, uh, cultures and peoples was a, a very appropriate thing to do. It wasn't strange, and uh, but most people thought it was strange that I was doing this. You know that I would dare, uh, you know, compare my family to Egyptian royalty. It seemed rather, you know, over the top for some people. Um. You're 84 now. I think it's okay to say because I want people to know that you started really your career at 45. Yes. And that's a time where many people would have been done uh, with their career or, or going uh, to something else. Exactly. And uh, here you are. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I found something that I didn't know how to do, and so it always challenged me. Do you know what I mean? I was always the sort of person who would get bored very quickly, you know? I would learn it and then, oh, I got that, you know, move on. But that never happened with me with art, so I'm still doing it. Um, but, but Lorraine O'Grady, I could be bored and be challenged to do something, and it wouldn't be seminal. It wouldn't be <laughs> earth-shattering in the art world. I can tell you it would just be something I did. But yet you've made um, a very important statement with your work. Well, <laughs> I, I feel that part of my ability to make important statements came from having lived a very full life before I began, so that I kind of was able to put everything I was encountering into a certain kind of perspective, you know. I had gone to, uh, uh, to Wellesley, and I had majored in economics, and I had, and, uh, I had minored in Spanish literature, and then I went to work for the government, then I had a translation agency. Then I, uh, you know, then I became a rock critic. And then I, I went to I went to school to to the Iowa Writers Workshop. Uh, I did a lot of things, and I had so I had many other worlds to compare the art world to, and so. I was able to see the art world more clearly than somebody who had just, you know, started as a 20-year-old and then grew up in it. Do you understand? I was coming into it as a 45-year-old with all of these other life experiences, and I was able to bring to bear a kind of analysis, I suppose, that other people may not have had. So that's why I think the work that I did was able to last, because it had this richness of life behind it. So when you look back now over your career, what does it feel like to be an icon of 
feminist I, art. I, I mean, you know, I mean that's, that's what you are. I, I am, but you know, I, I, I am still the person that nobody paid attention to for 20 years. You know what I'm saying? You know, I was, I, I've come back. Uh, I didn't want to come back. I've come for the first time because I can't say I was ever anywhere before. Uh, but I, you know, put up this website with all of my work and all of my writings, and suddenly everybody started to notice. And I still don't feel like an icon, and I don't feel famous. I still feel like this person who was like trying for people to pay attention, and nobody was paying attention. And you know, so now they are. It's a little hard to process. And um, what can I say? But I'm grateful. Like I can't say that I'm unhappy about that. It just you know, it's just hard to pull it all together. But well, let me ask this question: How? Because you're clearly influencing a lot of artists today, young women artists particularly. Thank you. How do you think you've influenced them? What do you, can you well, see? Well, I, uh, I try to ask as many of them as possible how what they think my influence is. And um, interestingly enough, the thing that I was the most embarrassed by when I began making art, which was that I was starting so late, is the, one of the very things I think that they are finding the most interesting about me and more and the most hopeful about me. Another thing I would say, uh, really, is that uh, it seems to me that uh, life has changed quite a bit, and so uh, when I was uh, growing up, and uh, you, I think it was still people still expected to go to work one place and stay there for the rest of their lives and retire, right? You know, and uh, that the generations now are um, knowing that. Uh, Almost every job has a finite limitation. Do you know what I mean? And so this business of moving from one thing to another, uh, which I thought of was, uh, you know, kind of like irresponsible. Who knows what I thought of it as, or my mother thought of it as. You know, she certainly didn't like it. Uh, this has become the very thing. Uh, this experimental attitude towards one own, one's own life has become the very thing that I think is making younger women more interested in me than they would have been, say, 40 years ago. Well, you're pretty interesting. <laughs> I have to say, oh, congratulations thank you. Thank you. Thank on a career so well done. We do share one thing in common. What? Wellesley College. You're Come on! You're 2017 uh, uh, Distinguished Alum, and I'm 2013. Hey, <laughs> no, you waited until the end to I tell did. me that. I did wait till the end oh, to tell you that. Isn't that wonderful? I know. We have so a, we nice know. to meet you. Yeah, well, it's oh, lovely my to meet goodness. You but I'm so much older than you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much <laughs> for spending some time with me this afternoon. Thank you very much. Lorraine O'Grady is a world-renowned artist whose solo show, Family Gained, is at the Museum of Fine Arts now through December 2nd. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at news.wgbh.org UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Please write to us at undertheradar at wgbh.org. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. Mm -hmm.